Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. On this episode, Bishop breaks down the recent changes to the Code of Canon Law. Specifically, the Pope recently announced revisions to Book 6, which focuses on sanctions in the Church. Hear more about the changes and why they're important. Then it's on to St. Aloysius Gonzaga. Born into an Italian aristocratic family, he gave up everything to become a Jesuit. We'll celebrate his feast day soon. The show wraps up with listener-submitted questions on statues of Mary and Joseph in parishes, priests wearing a stole during confession, and appropriate instruments for Mass. If you have a question, you can submit it at RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. Welcome to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our good bishop. Thanks again for joining us. You're welcome, Kyle. Good to be here. And uh, you are a canon lawyer. Yes. Correct. How many canon lawyers do we have in the diocese? Well, I, let's see. As far as priests, um, Father Mark Gertner, Father Jacob Runyon, Monsignor Bruce Pachaki. And then we also have some lay people who serve as canon lawyers in the diocese. And then Father David is still studying to be Father David Dooley is studying canon law at Catholic University of America in Washington, D.C. Yeah. All right. Well, appropriate to ask you then about the changes to the canon law that Pope Francis released recently. Did you know that this was happening? Yeah, I mean, they've been working on the revision of one of the books of the code. There are seven books of the Code of Canon Law. And uh, years ago, when uh, Pope Benedict was pope, he began, he asked for a revision of Book 6 of the code. Book 6 is sanctions in the church. Uh, So it has to do with the church's penal law. So sanctions are penalties, so it has to do with offenses and crimes. Pope Benedict, when he, you know, started that process for the revision, of course, it's taken many, many years, a lot of study, a lot of consultation. Pope Francis continued it, so they have finished their work, and uh, we will have a new revised Book 6. You know, the code came out in 1983, Hmm. um, and there have been little revisions here and there, but this is the first major revision, and it's just just on Book 6, which has 89 canons, 89 norms. So a lot of them have been amended. When they made the presentation at the Vatican about the changes, one of the two bishops who was doing the press conference uh, said that 63 of the canons have been amended, 63 out of the 89. They also moved some of them kind of reorganized it, 17 canons remained unchanged. Hmm. Um, A lot of these are, it's numbered, right? So does that mess up the numbering? The numbering would be uh, changed for that book, correct. So maybe we back up a little bit and explain what canon law is and and how it's used. Well, canon law is basically the, the law of the Catholic Church, the laws of the Catholic Church. Obviously, one of the purposes of norms, of laws, is to have order within the church community. And, you know, the church is a hierarchical and uh, has a hierarchical structure. For example, we have laws on everything from laws about 
the organization of the church, the governing authority of bishops, pastors. There are norms about the obligations and the rights of the laity, the obligations and rights of priests. There's a whole book of the code on consecrated life hmm. and norms regarding those who are uh, make vows. There's a book on the teaching office of the church, laws about preaching, um, hmm. catechesis, Catholic education, etc. There's a law, uh, a book of the code on the sanctifying office of the church, including laws about the administration of all the sacraments. I could go on and on. There's uh, also a book on the judicial processes in the church, the procedures. It's quite extensive. It kind of um, looks at the uh, the whole structure of the church, the administration of the sacraments, as I said, the proclaiming of the word of God. And all of this is directed to the salvation of souls. That's the ultimate law. So it's important that the laws be observed to have an orderly ecclesial life. And the book we're talking about with the revisions is the penal discipline. You know, there's sometimes offenses that are committed against, uh, against the church or against others within the church. And therefore, there are penalties or censures that are in place. And there's a, a process for the application or imposition of penalties. Of course, you know, you say, well, why do we have to have this in the church? Well, it's a matter of justice. Um, one of the purposes for having a penal system to begin with, just like in civil society, is the restoration of the requirements of justice. Also, for the church, it's the amendment of the offender and the reparation of scandals. Hmm. Um, and also, canonical sanctions have a medicinal function. You know, it can sometimes be bitter medicine, but it's medicine is needed when injustices happen. So I'd say in recent decades, there's been some laxity in applying criminal law in the church. I'd say it wasn't the, the present or the former book six left a lot of things to the discretion of the bishop. A lot of stuff wasn't real clear hmm. on how to handle certain crimes or certain offenses. We're all familiar with the scandals of the sexual abuse of minors, um, which led the church to reinvigorate, really, its criminal law. And that has already been done, and and some of that has been incorporated into... I mean, it's already been done outside the code. Now it's going to be right, right there in the code. So the reform was really neat, needed. It needed to be clearer. The canons needed to be simpler and clearer and to encourage the use of these canons, the recourse to criminal law when necessary for the sake of justice and actually for the sake of charity. You know, so there's less discretion now that's left to the authority. The new norms have reduced okay. the scope of discretion previously left to the authority. Um, I think the the offenses are better specified. The penalties are now listed more clearly. You know, there's a importance of protecting people, protecting the community, repairing scandal, compensating for damage, all okay. of those things are incorporated in this revision, and also to um, the means to prevent offenses, 
to intervene to correct situations that if left unchecked could become more serious. So there are things like penal precepts, which are warnings. And through it all, there's also the importance of the presumption of innocence until the contrary is proven, kind of like in the American system, there also mm -hmm. are rights of those who are accused that need to be defended. Mm -hmm. So things like the Dallas Charter and other kind of documents that have come out recently, maybe being a little bit more stern on some of these things, would you say that this is just kind of applying some of those things or is this going uh, even further? Well, the Dallas Charter is just for the United States. Right. Um, and what was connected to the Charter, though, were the essential norms. And the, really, the United States bishops were really ahead of the rest of the church, mm -hmm. um, even ahead of the Vatican in dealing with these huh. issues. I'd say the essential norms we have in the United States then were approved by the Vatican. Right. And is incorporated some of it into the universal law of the church now. That's going to be very helpful, especially in those countries where they haven't dealt as vigorously with this crime of, of sexual abuse mm -hmm. as we have here in the United States. So would you say that the changes are significant or is it kind of minor changes and, and maybe more just kind of getting caught up with how we have been doing things recently, or at least should have been doing them. Yeah, I, I would say um, some of these are, are laws that have been already in force, mm -hmm. but they weren't in the code. Right. Yeah. So, okay. so now they're in the code. So that's that's much better. And um, as far as how new uh, there, I do know there are some laws that are in the new code that uh, crimes that were kind of dealt with with special laws, but now they're in the code. Things like um, the attempted ordination of women. Mm. Okay, that's now gonna be in the code. There's okay. gonna be you know serious penalty if someone attempts to ordain a woman. Or recording confessions, okay? There was nothing about that, like tape huh. recording confessions. But there was a law that the, that the church uh, made, I don't know when, uh, prohibiting this. It wasn't explicit before. Mm -hmm. um, and now it's going to be explicit in the code. Another thing I can think of, sacrilegious consecration of the Eucharist. Um, I mean, I think there's, I haven't really seen the revision. Um, okay. We haven't received it yet. So the information I have is from what was said at those press conferences mm -hmm. when these two bishops presented it to the, to the media. There were also some things that were in the old code of 1917 that were dropped from the 19 and not in the 1983 code and now they're back in. Oh, okay. I found that very interesting. For example, corruption in in acts of office, concealing from legitimate authorities any irregularities or censures in the reception of holy orders. Some new uh, offenses would be violation of the pontifical secret, failure to comply with the obligation to execute a sentence or to uh, or a criminal decree, a failure to give notice of the commission of a crime, mm. unlawful abandonment of the ministry, also the violating the the uh, laws that have to do with some of our financial things. For example, the alienation of church property without the proper consultations. Mm. Let's say, like selling property that's very valuable. 
a bishop or a religious superior can do that, but has to have the proper authorization and consultations before mm -hmm. doing so. So it's kind of holding accountable to obeying the laws of the church. Uh, also, now we have offenses committed. Let's say there's serious misconduct or, grace, or gross negligence in administration, uh, especially financial administration. So in economic matters, um, offenses that are committed in that way. Also, the, um, I think it's significant that, for example, uh, sexual abuse or child abuse, a new canon includes abuse not just by clerics, not just by priests and deacons, but also offenses that are committed by religious or lay people who are working or occupy special roles in the church, certain roles in the church, and also any behavior such behavior with adults that are like like with that are done with violence or abuse of authority mm -hmm. that wasn't in the code before that's all there now too so before yeah clerics could be sanctioned but now lay people and religious can be sanctioned well and that's what i was kind of wondering because most of this seems like it's diocesan administration kind of things maybe some on the parish level as well uh, how much of this involves the laity and what what do the laity need to know about this or or is it just something for the the priests and and administration to worry about well really it's the i mean obviously for the bishop because mm -hmm. he's the one who is it's part of his his responsibility but in the structure of the diocese we have a tribunal mm -hmm. so Basically, the tribunal, the church court, would really be very much involved with this. Okay. Um, when we think of the Dawson Tribunal, we often think of marriage cases, but any of these kinds of cases could be handled judicially through a, a trial within the tribunal. That's the judicial means. There's also administrative means. In other words, where it wouldn't, wouldn't need to go to the tribunal, but the bishop himself has certain authority to handle these situations administratively, including these penal uh, sanctions. There are some that are reserved to the Holy See. So if I become aware of a, of a crime and offense that I wouldn't have the authority to impose a sanction, but I would have the responsibility to report it to Rome and then they would handle it. Mm -hmm. So you have to kind of see what level of authority. Now for the average person, it's good for people to know what mm -hmm. the penal law of the church is. Sure. Yeah. But as far as their, I mean, if there wanted to be, you know, a person who was violated in some way or whose rights were, uh, who, who was the victim of an offense, mm -hmm. you know, certainly has a right to have recourse to uh, seek justice from the church. Mm -hmm. And so this goes into effect December 8th? December 8th, yes. And so what would be the process for implementing this in the diocese, will there be, I mean, you'll update your books and right. then your canon lawyers will study up and, and know the changes and everything. Anything that would be happening, does the tribunal have to meet and... No, I think it's anything? just that they have to, to be, uh, study what the new, mm -hmm. uh, what the revised book six says. So obviously I have to know it, uh, Father Gertner is the vicar general, Father Runyon is the judicial vicar, mm -hmm. any others who serve in these, this kind of, I think the vicar for clergy, Father Matt Coonan, I would want him to be 
uh, up to date on this because some of this has to do with clerics. So I think it's a matter of education. As far as any structural changes, I don't think any are needed or required here. I mean, we have the structure. Mm -hmm. It's just a question of of, uh, implementing the law and understanding it well. And I'm very blessed. I mean, Father Gertner, Father Runyon, they're very, and Monsignor Pachaki, they are very helpful when we, when these kinds of cases may arise. And thanks be to God, there's not a lot, you know. Sure. I mean, it's obviously the most difficult and horrendous was the, the cases of sexual abuse of minors. Mm-hmm. There's certain things that could happen that really are handled in the civil arena. Mm-hmm. Let's say there's embezzlement yeah. or something like that of church funds at a parish or something. I mean, we'd report that to the police and, mm-hmm. you know, that's handled in the civil arena. But I have to look at the code now because maybe there's something, you know, with this revision, something that should be done internally as well regarding a church sanction uh, if something like that happens. But I, in again, the, not seeing the canon jet, I'm not sure. And you're talking about in addition to not in place right, of. Right, exactly. Any kind of civil exactly. action. One of the things that Pope Francis had said was that those who have committed a crime need both mercy and correction on part of the church. Mm-hmm. So I think what you've been focusing on and what I imagine the the code focuses on is the correction part. Exactly. Is there mention of mercy in there or is this kind of more of a pastoral thing? Um, that's a good question. I mean, the purpose of, of a sanction, of a um, purpose of a censure is ultimately the conversion mm-hmm. of the offender. I mean, <laughs> obviously the restoration of justice mm-hmm. for the victim, but also the uh, conversion and repentance of the offender. So it has that medicinal function. Mm-hmm. What's being addressed is the laxity in applying the criminal law. Where mercy comes in, I think, is that in applying a penalty, we don't do it in a way that's just punitive. Mm-hmm. It's it's meant to, I mean, look at our Lord and look at the correction that, that takes place. It's it's with love for the person, right? wanting their ultimate good. So that's where mercy comes in. But it doesn't mean being lax. Right. You know, and that's where the problem has been, I think. Very good. Yeah, I, I feel like sometimes the term mercy, people might interpret that as being like kind of turning your head and just saying, I will ignore it this time. That's not what we're suggesting with no, mercy. No, Because that's, you know, that leads to further problems and greater harm. I mean, mm-hmm. we saw it in the sexual abuse problem. I mean, where, I don't know if it would be called mercy, but there was kind of like um, sending someone for rehab or rehabilitation thinking that they could be healed of the problem. Mm-hmm. And so I guess you could say there was mercy being shown to the person, but then they get reassigned and abuse again. Right. You know, so greater harm takes place. Mm-hmm. So I would, I don't, you know, we have to beware, I'd say, of false mercy. Oh, good. All right. And is this available online if people want to look up at different things? I, I mean, the catechism is such a, a great resource for looking up church teaching and things like that. Is a similar... The Code of Canon Law is online. Okay. Um, one can access it. I don't know about the revised book six. Okay. I don't. I know the the Pope promulgated it. 
I don't know if it's translated into English yet. Oh, right. Um, I mean, the official text is in Latin. I don't even have the Latin <laughs> text, but I've been busy. I have to get online and see if they have it so I can download it and print it, but because I need to, to study it. Would you print out the Latin version and study if that? They're Engl- well, I'll do the English if the English <laughs> is available. If not, I'll do the Latin. Wow. Yeah. All right. Well, if you have any questions for Bishop, you can ask them by going to RedeemerRadio.com slash AskBishop. You can text the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598. And we're going to talk about St. Aloysius Gonzaga. And Bishop will respond to listener-submitted questions about the requirement of Mary and Joseph statues and if a priest has to wear a stole to hear a confession. Coming up on Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes, brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Notre Dame Federal Credit Union has a special mission to serve the Catholic Church in America. In 2020 alone, we've served over 800 parishes, schools, and nonprofits in more than 25 dioceses nationwide. We are a member-owned, not-for-profit cooperative, working hard to create a national Catholic financial alternative to the for-profit banks. You already share our values. Why not share in our benefits? Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. Welcome back to Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes. I'm Kyle Hyman here with our bishop. And June 21st, this coming Monday, is the Feast of St. Aloysius Gonzaga. I don't think we've talked about this before. No, I'm happy to talk about uh, St. Aloysius. We have a parish here in the diocese. St. Aloysius Gonzaga Parish is in Yoder, outside of Fort Wayne. They often call it St. Al's. St. Al's. I don't think I've ever heard it by its full name. Oh, yeah. Well, actually, it'd be better to say St. Luigi's. Oh, yeah? Because that's his name. Oh. That's his name in Italian. Aloysius is, well, is Luigi in in Latin. Huh. So why don't we tell the people that, you know, we'll call instead of St. Al's, they should call it St. Luigi's. Yeah. <laughs> at, le- at least uh, for like a, if you had like an Italian festival or something like that. Right, you right. Change the parish name for the day. Yep. So. Yeah. Aloysius de Gonzaga. Okay. Luigi Gonzaga. And he was a bishop. No, he was not. He was he'd always he was only twenty three when he died. Made that up. Oh I, I, I misread my notes. Bishop, you used to pray at his tomb. I did. That was the bishop so I have part. Some devotion. Okay. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> so where is his tomb? It's in the church of Saint Ignatius in Rome. And uh on my way walking from the North American College to the Gregorian University every day for class, there's different routes you could walk through the streets. It's like a half hour walk. Okay. And it was great because it was good exercise, stop and get a cappuccino on the way. <laughs> but many times I would stop in the church of St. Ignatius because there's three saints buried there. And um, I would pray at each one. One was St. Aloysius Gonzaga, beautiful altar um, where he's buried. And also St. Robert Bellarmine hmm. and St. John Berkman's. So I would kind of stop and kneel down at each of them and say a little prayer, especially because Aloysius was a seminarian. He was a uh, studying to be a Jesuit priest. Mm-hmm. So he died. He was never ordained, but he died before ordination. But he uh, is kind of the patron saint of youth, too, but also of seminarians. St. John Berkman's another young saint who was also Jesuit. Formation. He's the patron saint of altar boys. Hmm. 
Okay. And then St. Robert Bellarmine, uh, Cardinal, he was the the head of the Gregorian University. It wasn't called the Gregorian University at that time. It was called the Roman College, but it was the Jesuit school in Rome, and that's where I attended. So really, St. Ignatius Church is only a few blocks away from the Gregorian. So on my way to the university, I would stop in there. Not every day, but mm-hmm. but frequently I would stop in and pray at their tombs. So, um, so yeah, June 21st is the feast of St. Aloysius Gonzaga. Uh, I think people... When they hear his name, Gonzaga, they think of probably the basketball team. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, of course, Gonzaga University in uh, Spokane, Washington, is uh, is named for Saint Aloysius Gonzaga because you know it's a Jesuit university, and and Aloysius was a, a Jesuit, a member of the Jesuit order of the mm-hmm. Society of Jesus. He lived between the years 1568 and 1591. So uh, this was early in the history of the Jesuit order. He was uh, the oldest of seven children in his family, uh, and it was an aristocratic family, wealthy, in northern Italy. And his father was a a marquis of Castiglione. That's uh, that's where he was born, Castiglione. And uh, so... They were part of the nobility, and even his mother was a, a lady-in-waiting to the wife of Philip II of Spain. Hmm. So, I mean, they were high society. They were aristocrats. And as the firstborn son, Luigi was in line to inherit not only his father's you know, money, etc., but but also the title of being a marquis or whatever, if that's the way you pronounce it. Uh-huh. And his father... He would raise his son as a soldier because that was normal for the sons of the aristocracy, that they would get military training from a very young age. So then also an education in language and the arts and all that. It was it was high society. So even at the young age of four, he was given little guns and his father took him for training and hmm. to learn the art of arms. Mm-hmm. Then he was sent to a military camp when he was five years old. Can you imagine that? Um, (laughs) To get started on his training. and um, I've got a six-year-old that (laughs) I can't imagine. No, exactly. My 11-year-old. Yeah. And think about this. This is during the Renaissance. Uh So during the Renaissance, you know, there was a lot of violence and brutality in Italy. Um, He even saw the murder of of two of his brothers. Hmm. Aloysius or Luigi witnessed their murder. Uh, eventually, his father sent him to Florence along with his younger brother, Rodolfo, to serve at the court of the Grand Duke to get more education. He got ill, though. He had some kind of kidney disease, and it, it really troubled him throughout his life. But while he was ill, kind of like St. Ignatius after his, the, you know, the cannonball in his leg, uh-huh. he started reading about the saints, and he'd spend a lot of time in prayer. So... Here he was just eight, about eight or nine years old, and he was uh, growing in his faith and um, and prayed. You know, began a life of prayer. He even took a vow of chastity. So at that young age, hmm. and he was kind of getting turned off by all the violence and the frivolous lifestyle of that Renaissance court in mm-hmm. in uh, Florence. Interestingly, when he went home to Castiglione, he met. The Cardinal, Charles Borromeo, the Archbishop of Milan, Uh and received his first Holy Communion 
from St. Charles Borromeo. So it's huh. interesting, isn't it? A saint, uh, two saints. Right. He then read a, a book about Jesuit missionaries in India, and then he had that desire. He was inspired by their courage, and he wanted to be a missionary. And Which, like you said, this is very early in the Jesuit. Right. This is still, I mean, this is like 1580, and yeah. so it's not long after the uh, Francis Xavier was in India. Uh-huh. He started teaching catechism to young boys in his hometown, and he started doing penance and ascetic, ascetical lifestyle, a lot of fasting and things like that. The family was then called to Spain. As I mentioned, his mother was um, a lady-in-waiting. and they, what, what does that mean? Well, kind of like a uh, the number one person who took care of or served the the queen or whatever. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Huh. Uh, so they went to Madrid, and um, Aloysius started thinking more and more about joining a religious order, mm-hmm. you know. And uh, he thought about becoming a Capuchin, Franciscan, but he had a confessor who was a Jesuit. And as I said, he was inspired by the stories of the Jesuit missionaries in India so he decided to enter the Jesuits. His mother was okay with that, but his father was furious. Uh-huh. I mean, you can imagine what his father's hopes for him. So his father really prevented him from joining. When they went back to Italy, he still wanted to become a priest. He wanted to become a Jesuit. A lot of the family members were trying to persuade him not, but he wouldn't give up. And then they started saying, okay, how about be a secular priest, be a diocesan priest? Mm -hmm. Because at that time, okay, they're thinking, okay, he could still get some status. He could become a bishop, but not if he became a Jesuit, because he'd have to take a vow of poverty. He he would have to renounce the right to the inheritance Uh from his father, his status. So, but again, he wanted, he wasn't interested in becoming a bishop. He wasn't interested. He just wanted to be a missionary. I mean, his father did everything he could to stop him. I mean, his father really was very opposed. Eventually, though, because Aloysius just was insistent, the father finally gave in, gave up all his rights of inheritance. The emperor had to confirm this. This is how high that family was. Uh Even met with the pope. But he was then accepted into the Society of Jesus, into the Jesuits in Rome. So he began his formation. Now, as I said, he was doing a lot of fasting. He was also doing other penances that were pretty severe and unhealthy. So they had to moderate that. They had to kind of guide him to moderate his asceticism. And he still had health problems. Besides the kidneys, he had chronic headaches. He had skin some kind of skin disease. He suffered from insomnia. So... He, he was having a rough time, but but he persevered um, and uh, took his vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience, uh, received the minor orders, and was starting to study theology in order to be ordained a priest. During that time, a plague broke out in Rome, an epidemic kind of like what we've just yeah. been through. And the Jesuits had a hospital for the plague victims. They opened. And... Aloysius volunteered to work there. Hmm. So he'd carry the dying from the streets and would wash and feed them and prepare them to receive the sacraments, etc. But then the 
some of the young Jesuits were getting infected with the plague, with the disease. So his superiors wouldn't allow him to go anymore hmm. because, you know, they didn't want him to get it. He already had bad health, but he persisted and persisted. Mm -hmm. They finally gave him permission to go to uh, another hospital, which didn't accept plague victims. Hmm. So they thought, okay, that'll be safer. He can visit the sick, but not plague victims because it's so contagious. But it just so happens that Aloysius lifted a man out of his sick bed and took care of him and brought him back to the bed. No one knew, but this man had the plague uh -huh. and Aloysius contracted it. So he got very, very sick. He was bedridden. And actually it was just a few days before his 23rd birthday hmm. that he died. Um, he received the sacrament anointing of the sick. Oh, by the way, while he was sick, he saw his confessor a lot. And I never mentioned who his confessor was. Another saint, okay. Robert Bellarmine. Oh, wow. Who at that time was a cardinal. So he had his first communion from Cardinal um, Charles, Charles Borromeo, St. Charles Borromeo. And then his confessor was St. Robert Bellarmine, who was the head of the Roman College, which became the Gregorian University. So St. Robert Bellarmine gave him the last rites, said the prayers for the dying, and uh, evidently he uh, it was a beautiful death. He was holding the crucifix in his hands, staring mm. at Jesus. It wasn't long after his death that he was beatified. He became uh, blessed Aloysius Gonzaga. I think it was 14 years after his death. And then it was another more than a century later that he was canonized a saint. And um, he was named patron saint of all Christian youth hmm. by Pope Pius XI. He's also considered a patron saint of plague victims. Mm -hmm. um, Seems like a good one for healthcare workers, too, who's caring for the sick and right, right. seminarians and <laughs> so, exactly. so many people, yeah. Exactly. I always, you know, I'm inspired by... Like, young adults like this yeah. who reach that level of sanctity. There's just a good number of them. You mm -hmm. know, I was preaching recently about Blessed Pierre Giorgio Frassati. And of course, we talked last year about um, Carlo Acutis. Mm -hmm. um, and there's so many other young saints. You think of Maria Goretti and Jose Sanchez del Rio. I mean, it's really how we see uh, holiness in, in young people like this is pretty amazing. Well, and him praying and fasting from a young age, I just want to wonder how much that kind of set him up to make the right decisions and the hard decisions to, you know, go against your family to do what God's calling you to do. And yep. you know, yep. the, the power of fasting, I feel like we don't talk about that much. So right, good example right. for us. Yeah, exactly. You know, there was thing, his father, um, by the way, who opposed his vocation so much, mm -hmm. he really did not only give in. Uh, when Aloysius was on his way to the novitiate, he had a letter that he carried with him to the Jesuit superior general from his father. And his father said in the letter, I merely say that I'm giving into your reverence's hands the most precious thing I possess in all the world. Hmm. So he really loved his son, yeah. you know, so. All right. Well, we have a few minutes for some listeners submitted questions. If you're up for a bishop. 
Sure. Our first listener asked, are parishes required to have a statue of Mary and Joseph? If so, why? And could it be painted instead? Like, could you have a, a painting of Mary and Joseph? Well, you certainly can have paintings of you don't have to have stat you don't even have to have statues. I don't know of any church law that says you have to have a statue of Mary or Joseph. I think okay. it's a custom okay. that we have, but I don't think there's any requirement, let alone it you know, it being a statue. I mean, there's many churches that don't have statues in Europe and that that they have um and in the East, they might have mosaics, mm -hmm. they might have paintings. In Rome, you see a lot of churches with paintings. Mm -hmm. You know, even in our new, uh, in the cha not that new anymore, but the chapel at, uh, of chapels in our high schools, mm -hmm. we decided on paintings okay. rather than statues. We have, for example, St. Joseph High School Chapel. Some, you know, in the front, there's three beautiful paintings. One of the Annunciation of Mary, another of the Annunciation of Joseph, and another of the Nativity. There are two statues in the back of the chapel there. Uh -huh. But if you look at also the other chapels, high school chapels we have, it's mostly paintings. But it's not required to have an image at all of Mary no, and Joseph? No, I mean, you know, I'd have to look it up. I, I can't think that it's required. I think it's more customary as part of people's devotion uh, to have images of Mary and Joseph, uh, other saints. Mm -hmm. I'd have to look at um, the documents that have to do with uh, with church buildings but I don't recall a requirement per se. Okay. Someone else asked, can a priest hear a confession without a stole? Yes. I mean, there's no, um, in the rite of penance, uh, there's no particular directive about what a priest should wear okay. when hearing confessions. It pretty much leaves it to, I think, the, uh, the local bishop or the, or the local Episcopal conference. Again, the custom is, and it seems very appropriate, is that a priest wear a stole, a purple stole. And, and the reason is that it is an exercise of his priestly office. Mm -hmm. And the stole is really a symbol of his priestly office. So it's very customary. I will wear a purple stole. But sometimes I'm out or something and someone asks me to hear their confession. There's no stole around. Uh -huh. I can certainly hear their confession. Okay. The stole is not necessary. And why purple? Penance. It's okay. the color of penitence. All yeah, right. some priests will carry like a like a miniature stole. Yes, like yes. one in their pocket, small one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have one. Yeah, usually when I would as a priest do sick calls, um, I would carry that with me in case the person wanted to go to confession before sure. receiving Holy Communion. Good. And finally, someone said, "Are there any instruments you think are inappropriate for Mass?" This question of musical instruments is an interesting one. I think it's important to to keep in mind that the church always thinks, uh, always says that the uh, the human voice is the fundamental instrument. Okay. So I I think we forget that sometimes. Uh, musical instruments in the liturgy are really an extent, like are to support that are mm -hmm. really a extension support for the primary instrument, the human voice. For example, there's, you know, we have chant and a cappella singing without mm -hmm. musical instruments. As far as what instruments are suitable for, litur for the liturgy, for divine worship, the church teaches that the organ has, is to have pride of place. Mm -hmm. And why is that? Because it has that capacity to sustain the singing of a large gathered assembly mm -hmm. and also the beauty of the organ. The 
pipe organ in particular is most suitable. Mm-hmm. As far as using musical instruments in the liturgy, we can think back to the Old Testament when the Ark of the Covenant was brought in procession. Remember, they had all kinds of instruments, cymbals and harps and lyres and trumpets. So throughout history, the people of God has used various musical instruments to sing praise Uh to God. And a lot of this, when you think about musical instruments, they come from the culture too, and the traditions of particular people. Like a lot of my priestly ministry was in the Hispanic community and Mm -hmm. their particular musical instruments, especially stringed instruments that are very common, more common than the organ often. And we can say different other instruments can enrich the celebration of liturgy wind, stringed, or percussion instruments according to local culture, etc. But but they need to be suitable for sacred use. In other words, they shouldn't be kind of music that would be just for sheer entertainment or to, you know, it, it, it should be suitable for the praise of God. Mm-hmm. And um, sometimes there's instrumental music that can assist the the uh, the assembly in preparing for worship. For example, a prelude before mass on the organ, mm-hmm. or maybe a postlude after the liturgy. Um, I do think that one thing that concerns me a little bit, to be honest, and I do want to address this, is the idea that we have to constantly fill up any time in the liturgy. Right with with music, let's say when there's not a spoken part that there always has to be an instrument playing. No, mm-hmm. I mean, we should have silence too. Mm-hmm. You know, I wish there was more silence. Uh, I've asked this at different times. I, I've been at some places where it's like, I don't know, like there's a certain discomfort maybe with silence. So they feel like they always have to be having something, some sound, some, so instrumental music filling up any time that there's silence. That's not the church's mind. Um, I think particularly after receiving Holy Communion, the importance of having a period of silence. We don't have to fill that in with a song or with uh, instrumental music. You know, we can have some, I'm not saying we shouldn't have any instrumental music, but, but I think we should have some significant periods of silent reflection. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. And I think there, I know what you mean also about feeling uncomfortable with that silence. And you know, maybe it's from working in radio. <laughs> silence doesn't work very well. But I think we're so used to constantly, if you're in the car, you turn on the radio. If you're at home, you turn on the TV or you, you listen to something on your phone or having earbuds in. And we constantly are filling our lives with noise. Yeah. And we do need that silence. And yeah. Mass is a great place to have some of that silence. So. Exactly, exactly. Or even during a holy hour. I recently had a holy hour that they did a pretty good job where they had some music during the holy hour, um, kind of meditative, mm-hmm. you know, singing. Um, but then they'd have an extended period of silence, mm-hmm. um, which I really, really appreciated. I'm not a fan of filling up a whole holy hour. I'm talking when there's Eucharistic adoration mm-hmm. with music the whole time. You know, I'm like, oh, I just want to, I just want to listen to the Lord. I just want to yeah. have some quiet time to talk to the Lord. And I find and listen to the Lord. 
and I, I kind of find myself getting a little irritated, like wanting to just have that silence, you know, but I have to be patient. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bishop, for another great episode of Truth and Charity. If anybody has any questions for Bishop, you can text us on the Holy Cross College text line, which is 260-436-9598. And before we go, could we get your Episcopal blessing? I think... Um, didn't you mention that you wanted a blessing for fathers on Father's Day? That'd be great. Because Father's Day is this Sunday. That's right. Yeah, so we remember them, remember all of our fathers, including our deceased fathers. But I would like to say this prayer for all the fathers who are listening today. Okay. In the name of the Father and of the Son of the Holy Spirit, amen. Amen. God, our Father, in your wisdom and love, you made all things. Bless these men that they may be strengthened as Christian fathers. Let the example of their faith and love shine forth. Grant that we, their sons and daughters, may honor them always with a spirit of profound respect. Grant this through Christ our Lord. Amen. And may Almighty God bless you all, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you, Bishop. You're welcome, Kyle. Truth and Charity with Bishop Rhodes is brought to you in part by Notre Dame Federal Credit Union. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit Spokestreet.com.